Paul's point is that the man who did not heed God's counsel, the man who used strong drink, that is much wine, is not fit to be a deacon. And do you know what? This is the reason so many people get drunk today. The stuff's addictive. Please don't call him an alcoholic. That's the world's term. God calls the man, the woman, a drunkard. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We've been looking at the need for and the qualifications of deacons in the church. This message is part of our study from 1 Timothy chapter 3, which addresses the issue of elders and deacons. But much of Pastor Carl's text comes from Acts chapter 6, which provides a lengthy discourse on the roles and requirements of deacons in particular. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy now as he continues his look at church deacons. D.L. Moody used to say, and I quote, better to put 10 men to work than for a pastor to try to do the work of 10 men. Certainly it's better for the pastor. Certainly it's better for those whom you give an opportunity to serve, and it's better for the health of the church as a whole. I know a lot of bitter men who are in the ministry or have left it because of its disastrous effects on their life. Now, this verse is very clear. Don't take the very first seven men who are available. Rather, select men who are qualified to do the job. And we commonly call these seven men here in Acts 6 deacons because the Greek cognate diakonia, which is used in verse 1, translated service, and diakoneo in verse 2, translated serve, simply means a servant. Throughout the New Testament, wherever you see the word servant, it's the Greek word diakonos. That's all it is. But when it's used in a formal sense, it refers to the office. But unlike the office of elder, you will be very hard-pressed to find a job description for the deacon in the New Testament. In fact, the exact nature of what a deacon is supposed to do is nowhere spelled out in the New Testament. And it doesn't have to be because the title says it all. A servant, a diaconess, is one who executed the commands of another. And the function of the seven was to assist the apostles. And back in 1 Timothy 3, having just given the qualifications and the role that an elder is to play, it becomes apparent that the deacons who follow serve at the will of the elders. And here in Acts 6, you find these seven men who are humble servants in the church, men who made it possible for the apostles to do what God had called them to do. And I might note they are men, not women. Not because men are better than women, but because in God's order of things, God has a different role for men than he has for women. Look at the verse. But select from among you, brethren, seven men. Please note, he does not use the Greek word anthropos that's used generically to refer to men and women alike. He uses the Greek word andros that can only refer to a man. A deacon is to be a man. And I know on this day of women preachers and women deacons that what I'm saying this morning is not popular, but it is right because it's taught right here in Acts 6 where the office originates. The office of pastor, the office of elder, the office of bishop, the office of overseer, all the same office, and the office of deacon, a second office, and the New Testament clearly can only be filled by a man. 
And again, it has absolutely nothing to do with equality. We are equal, but we have different roles in the body of Christ. Just as in your home, the husband and the wife are equal, but the husband is called to be the head of his wife. Well, in the church, men and women are equal, but the deacon, those who fill the office of servant, are to be filled by men. It doesn't mean that a woman is inferior. They just have different roles. You know, there are some things in the church that only a man can do, and there are other things in the church that only a woman can do. For instance, as an elder, I am forbidden by God to disciple in an ongoing fashion young women. Listen to what Paul says to Titus in that pastoral epistle. Older women, likewise, as he instructs Titus, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women. Now, Titus chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 tells me that the older women are to teach and to train the younger women. You read that whole chapter, and Paul's very specific. He says, Titus, you teach the older men. Titus, you teach the older women. Titus, you teach the young men. Titus, you teach the bond slaves. But Titus, don't you teach those young gals. You teach the older women so they in turn can teach those younger women. Why? Because first, I think... Older women are more qualified to disciple younger women by virtue of the fact that they are a woman and understand some of the special needs. But secondly, I believe God is trying to protect his pastors from scandal. You have a pastor who's compassionate, caring, listening, spirit-filled, and a woman comes consistently for counseling, and she's got a husband who's not that way, Well, she can easily become infatuated, not because he's good-looking, but because he's caring. And potentially, there's great problem in the church. Titus, you teach the older women. They, in turn, will teach the younger women. 99% of the women I counsel, I counsel once. Only twice is my policy in a six-month period of time. And most of the time, if there's an ongoing need, I come up with a a, a solution, with a a standard of counseling that would need to be implemented in her life, and I give an older woman that responsibility to carry it out. And I wonder if we are aware of the price that we are paying in the church today for violating this truth. It's not a matter of qualities. It's a matter of roles. It's to protect the church from scandal. And those who are set aside to serve in the office of deacon, first and foremost, need to be servants. Seven men described here who are humble servants. Look at verse 3. But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Now, they were men whose work made it possible, again, for the apostles to do their work. But please notice, they don't look for seven warm bodies to solve the problem. They look for qualified men. They had to be men, first, of good reputation. Second, men who were filled with the Spirit. Third, men full of wisdom. And you know, wisdom is not just knowledge. It's the ability to take Bible knowledge and apply it practically to the everyday events of life. So they diagnose the problem. They determine the priority. They delegate the responsibility. Notice, too, they discover the effect. Verse 7. 
And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests, even the religious folks, were getting saved. They were becoming obedient to the faith. You know what that means? It means they were growing faster. They were growing faster than ever before because they were doing it God's way. And I want to tell you, a church will stand or fall on its leadership. There's no easy growth, but when problems are solved God's way, the work will continue to the glory of God. Do you know why this early church grew so much? Because every time the devil attacked, they went to their knees and they came back with a God-given solution based on God's book. And listen, friends, a church cannot stop growing when they look to the Lord Jesus Christ and they do it His way. And I thank God that we have some growth pains a community Bible church, because I'd rather be a part of a church that was growing than a part of a church that was dead and doing nothing. And so when Paul writes the church at Philippi, he says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. A few brief years of church history had bypassed. They had gone from Jerusalem to Antioch, across Asia Minor, across the Aegean into Europe. So by the time he writes one of these early epistles, the office of elder and the office of deacon are both in place. Now that's how the office office began early in the days of the church when the church was born. So we need to ask a second question. What are the qualifications for becoming a deacon? What traits ought to be true of the true servant of God? Well, God doesn't leave us in the dark. Through the pen of the Apostle Paul, here back in 1 Timothy 3, he gives us the credentials for the office. He proceeds to spell out nine essential qualifications for the man who wants to serve in the office of deacon. He just touched on him in Acts 6. Now he spells it out in detail. Now gird up your minds for action. Some of you are already going into the ozone and, and you're thinking about this afternoon. And, I, and as we go through this grocery list, they're very, very important because some of you someday may be in the process of selecting a deacon. Or you may be one who is aspiring to become a deacon. Or you just want to be a godly servant for the Lord. Well, these nine qualities are things that you would want to seek. First, a deacon is to be a man of dignity. Look at verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity. Now, the word likewise is very important because it communicates the same kind of emphasis that Paul placed on the office of elder. Likewise, these men, encircle those words, must be. There are certain things that must be true of a deacon just as there are certain things that must be true of an elder to serve. He's not talking about something that's optional, but something that is necessary, not something that is uh, nice, but absolutely essential. And so what we see first is that, is that they are to be men of dignity. Now, the Greek word actually has two connotations to it. First, there's a seriousness of purpose. And second, there is a respect in the way they conduct themselves. A dignified man is a man of serious purpose and of respectful conduct. You know, he's not just a continual jokester. It doesn't mean he doesn't have a sense of humor, but he's not frivolous. He's not shallow. He's not superficial. He's not silly. And there's a sense of determination and commitment and stability in his walk with Jesus Christ. The word dignity means he's worthy of respect. It's a positive term, 
And as much as anything, I suppose it's explained by the three negative qualifications that follow. Positively, a deacon is to be a man of dignity. But negatively, a deacon is not to be double-tongued. Now, the idea that a deacon is not to say one thing to one person and another thing to another person. And because he does not say one thing to one member and another thing to another member, you can depend on what he says. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? Next to a number of you, next to uh, the Bible, it's the most published book in the world. I commend it to your reading. It's fascinating. But if you remember in that book, there's that pastor called Mr. Two Tongues. And then there in the congregation, there was Mr. Smooth Man and Mr. Anything and Mr. Facing Two Ways. These were all people of duplicity. Now, I find it interesting because in the Septuagint, which is the Greek rendition of the Old Testament. The meaning of some Greek words can be illuminated by the way they are used in the Old Testament. Most people lost their ability to speak Hebrew, so they read their Old Testament in Greek. And so the way you saw a Hebrew word translated into Greek sometimes shed some light on how that Greek word was thought of in the first century. Well, I find it rather interesting because this Greek word translated here, double-tongued, is translated in the Hebrew Septuagint, translated into Greek as a talebearer or as a gossiper. For instance, in Proverbs 11, he who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. And since a deacon potentially serves a lot of people, and since potentially he becomes privy to some of their problems, a deacon who is going to be effective cannot be a person who has a double tongue. He has to have a tight, tight lip. But unfortunately, there are people sometimes who do not know how to keep a confidence. And somebody says, look, this has to be just between you and me. Or that's understood. But given the chance, they run off at the mouth. Because in their economy, sometimes knowledge is power. And it makes them feel good to, to know about another person's problem and be able to tell it to others. Look, I want to tell you whether you're a deacon or not, if you know how to keep a confidence, you will become a person who potentially can be greatly used in helping people to solve their problems. A deacon who is double-tongued in a short period of time will wreak havoc in the church. In, in addition, notice we're told a deacon is not to be addicted to wine. Deacons, we read, likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine. Now, the Greek word reads, one who sits alongside of wine, literally. Paul is saying, when you see a man who sits alongside of a glass of wine, you see a man who's not qualified to be a deacon. Now, very clearly, this verse does not teach total abstinence, as you would expect Paul not to teach, especially in the culture of the first century. Now, please let me explain and don't tune me out and run with that last statement, lest you think that the Bible endorses the free use of alcohol. If you read your Bible very carefully, you will discover two very clear teachings about the use of alcohol. Number one, it is a sin to get drunk. Number two, it is a sin to use strong drink. And of course, before you can apply any passage of Scripture to your own life, you must first ask, what did it mean to the original audience? We studied in our opening sessions 
in 1 Timothy about various cultural things like head coverings. Paul says a woman ought to have her head covered in church. Don't see any here today. But you see, when you understand what it meant to the first century, then you can first understand the timeless principle that's taught there, but also how it should be applied in the day in which we live. And so when you understand how the term strong drink was used in the Word of God, you can make proper application for your life. Now, I won't take a whole time the sermon today to preach on alcohol. If you want a sermon on alcohol, I'll give you some. I've preached a number. be happy to tell you where to find them here at the church in our library. But let me just say a few things here about strong drink. If you take out a concordance, and you look it up, you're going to discover very quickly that God is not too keen about strong drink. For instance, in Proverbs, we read, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. You say, well, pastor, what is strong drink? You're talking about whiskey, vodka, vodka, scotch? I mean, what is it? Well, we know it's not those distilled liquors, because if you've ever studied anything about the history of alcohol, as I have extensively, you're going to discover that those things weren't even in place in Bible days. Distilled liquors came some centuries later, long after the Bible was written. So I know it doesn't mean that. Strong drink is simply wine in its fermented form. Now, understand the word wine in the Bible, yayin in Hebrew, oinos in the Greek New Testament, can refer to either unfermented or fermented juice depending on its context. Now, you will meet some pastors, I know, who will tell you that every time you see the word wine in the Bible because they don't want their people using it, that it means unfermented drink. Look, you can't read the Bible and come to that conclusion. Paul says, for instance, and do not get drunk with oinos with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. You don't have to be a Bible scholar or a Greek scholar to know that he's talking about the real thing, something that will get you drunk. But more often than not, when it was in season, Christians drank the fruit of the vine, beverages like grape juice. But because they didn't have preservatives like we have in our Welch's grape juice, it would turn, it would ferment. Fermentation, by the way, if you think about it, it's a result of the fall. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that things wax old, they, they rot because of the sin that entered into the world. That's why ferment, fermentation came into the world. It's not the way God originally intended it. But nonetheless, you couldn't, because of refrigeration and the lack of preservatives, drink grape juice year-round or whatever kind of other juice was indigenous to that society. Yet on the other hand, typically it was very difficult to drink the water in a wide-scale way. Every summer we go to the Ukraine, we tell our kids, please, don't drink the water. Don't drink the water. Don't even brush your teeth with the water. Some of them somehow, they think they have a constitution that's just tougher. And first day they brush their teeth and they rinse their mouth out with the water and they drink a few drops and they're sick as a dog for the next three or four days. Look, there are many places in the world that are just like that. And if you read Josephus and a number of early historians, you discover that's how the first century world was for the most part. Well, it was rather inconvenient to stoke a fire all the time when you wanted to purify your water. And so typically what they would do is they would add wine, strong drink, which in some passages, a couple are actually spoken of as a blessing because it was necessary in many ways to function easily in life. 
And so they would add the, the wine, the strong drink, to the water. It would kill the bacteria and make it safe to drink. You say, well, how did they mix it? Well, in the literature that's come down to us, they mixed it in a five-to-one ratio. Five parts water, one part wine. There's a second century B.C. rabbinical manual that has come down to our day that was an instruction manual to rabbis on how to prepare the Passover because when they celebrated Passover, at that time of year, the Jews would have already have turned. And so lest they be guilty of violating God's condemnation of strong drink in the Old Testament scriptures, the rabbinical manual specified at the Passover, you mix it five parts water, one part wine. There's a second century A.D. pastoral manual that has come down to our day used by pastors in the second century as they celebrated the Lord's table. Unless they be guilty of using strong drink at the Lord's Supper, they mixed it five parts water, one part wine. Now the burden of proof for you to show otherwise would depend upon you. But there's a lot of people who don't want to listen to the facts. But I think this is what Paul had in mind when he wrote to Timothy in his first epistle. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Timothy, who found himself traveling quite extensively, as recorded in the Acts, probably was trying to do what John the Baptist did, who never touched a drop of wine in his life. He probably wanted to take a Nazarite vow. In the process, he was getting sick. And Paul says, Timothy, you need to take a little bit of wine too for your frequent ailments. But what I want you to see is that the pure wine and beer were considered strong drink, and God in his wisdom tells you in its raw form, don't use it. Of course, he gives an exception. It's found in Proverbs 31.6. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. God allowed strong drink, undiluted wine, to be given to a dying man. It's actually a Hebrew parallelism here. One who's dying, that is whose life is bitter. Just like today, we would give morphine as an act of mercy to a dying person. So Paul's point, is that the man who did not heed God's counsel, the man who used strong drink, that is much wine, is not fit to be a deacon. And do you know what? This is the reason so many people get drunk today. This stuff's addictive. Please don't call him an alcoholic. That's the world's term. God calls the man, the woman, a drunkard. Please don't call it a disease. It is not a disease. If it were a disease, you wouldn't be responsible for it anymore than you would morally be responsible for getting cancer. Look, it's not a disease. God calls it drunkenness, and he says that those who live like that have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Only a second birth will change it. Oh, I suppose it's a disease in terms of the effect it may have on your liver and other consequences it may bring to your body. But God doesn't call it a disease. He calls it a sin. And in our day, we would be very unwise to use it. Number one, it has the appearance of evil. Look, the liquor industry is a wicked, evil industry. And let me go on record and underline that in your mind that that's what your pastor believes. Front page, Monday, USA Today. Did you see that woman guzzling down her tequila? And the appeal 
And that whole ad was talking about how college campuses all across America this semester are inviting students to go to Mexico where there are loose drinking laws and to go to Europe and places like Amsterdam where there are no laws at all so you can have just a great time and drink as much as you want to drink. I want to tell you it is an evil, wicked industry that is promoting immorality. And throughout the Word of God, you'll find wine and immorality kissing. They're linked together. And any wicked man knows that if you want to loosen the morals of another person, just give them liquor. Number one, it has the appearance of evil. Number two, I don't believe it glorifies God in our day. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Paul said, let it be all done to the glory of God. Number three, it can easily cause another brother or sister in Christ to stumble. And that ought to be reason enough for you to abstain. But I want to tell you, it's not as gray as we make it today. It's strong drink, and it is forbidden in that form. You say, Pastor, I just want to have a little glass of wine with my pastor or my pizza. I know there's been a lot of chatter in recent days because it's gotten back to me. I don't agree with Pastor Brogy and his stance on alcohol. You don't have to agree with me. But I want to tell you, you will wish you'd agreed with me when you meet Jesus Christ at the judgment seat in heaven because you will be ashamed. You will be ashamed of the foolishness of the decision that you made. And don't blame me if you're the kind of Christian who has a little glass of wine at home if your children get in trouble with alcohol. I don't buy the argument that I can model moderation and my children will follow that. That's like saying, well, I'm going to use cocaine in a little moderation. Look, it's strong drink, it's addictive, and the devil knows it. And these parents, most of whom that are meeting, who are dealing with adult children who grew up in their Christian homes who are having problems with liquor or having problems with liquor because their parents supposedly modeled moderation. Look, to use it is to abuse it. And if your children grow up and they have a problem with alcohol, I want to tell you, you may be the root of it. And they may not lick that problem until you get on your face before God and ask Him to forgive you for your wicked support of the alcohol industry in this nation. Listen, if you're a young person, you shouldn't even take a job where you have to serve it. What does Habakkuk 2.15 say? Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor. Listen, if you have to work in a restaurant where, where they're serving liquor and that owner can't excuse you from it, I wouldn't work in that restaurant. I would trust God to give you another job. Now look, I'll go to a restaurant where they will serve liquor. I won't drink it. I won't touch a drop of it, but I'll go there because I want to go where the pagans are. I let a man to Christ who was in our first service this morning, 15 feet away from the bar room there over at Applebee's. And he bowed his head as we sat right outside of the bar that day and received Christ as his Lord. Look, you come to my table at lunch this week, and you see a bottle of Budweiser on it. You want to introduce your pagan friend? Oh, this is my pastor. I'm really going to be inclined to witness to him, aren't I? You'd be embarrassed. Look, God doesn't have one standard for me and another for you. And if you want to be the kind of blessable person 
that God can use. Refrain from it. I don't know of a single leader today in the United States that you will hear, at least on the Moody Broadcast Network, that will advocate the use of alcohol. Now, they may get there in different ways, but I want to tell you, I don't know of a single Christian that God is using in any great degree who uses liquor today. Some strong teaching on God's standard for leaders in the church, but it's not a matter of opinion. It's merely expressing God's word. God blesses the man who seeks to please God. To listen again to today's message on deacons, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program 1TM8. Tomorrow we conclude our study of deacons. Join us then as we search the scriptures.